calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. I want to take a second to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like, Mayday. No one is prepared for disaster. No one knows exactly how they'll react in a plane crash, an earthquake, or when a lone gunman decides to open fire. On Mayday, you'll hear about the people who had to find out, people whose stories deserve to be heard. Join hosts Maya Nalani and Luke Welland as they tell you about extraordinary people who found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Listen to Mayday wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome to the Drilling, Excavating, Corrections, and Apprehensions Group. Here at DECA, or DECA, we run the world's largest private prison system. We are responsible for locking up and disciplining criminals from all corners of the Western Democratic Union. But at DECA, we don't believe in just disciplining. We believe that there is a way for every human to keep adding value to our economy. That's why DECA has the largest and only meteorite mining complex in the known universe. At the DECA Mining Complex, prisoners help us with drilling and excavating the rare minerals and precious metals we need back on Earth. So, becoming part of DECA doesn't just mean you will make the Western world a safer place. It also means you will keep our economy healthy and thriving. That's why all 10 members of the DECA Board of Directors in London would like to say, congratulations and go get them. DECA Group, for order and prosperity. Communicator, and this is my tenth entry. About yesterday. I... I feel like it's partly my fault. I didn't see it coming. None of the attacks. And I should have. It's a miracle he didn't kill her. It's a miracle the cleaner didn't kill the cook. He kept punching her that first time. It was horrendous. You could hear the punches. I mean... You could hear the bones in her face. 
I had been paying extra attention to the cleaner the days before it happened. Apart from the cook, of course. Everyone is paying extra attention to her. But I had a bad feeling about the cleaner. He needs structure, and he needs to be in control. Ever since things are changing in the eight rooms, I knew there was a possibility of him losing his shit, but I never, ever anticipated something like this. Right before it happened, I was with the cook. We were exercising together. I'm spending more time with her to try and understand her like I understand most of the others. The cleaner walked in with the doctor. Well, he stormed in, actually. He was holding the scissors from the hospital room. There was blood on them. He said he found those right next to the bed the cook slept in the night before. That doesn't prove anything, of course, but in his mind, he had just solved the murder. He threw the scissors toward the cook's feet and outed her. I pointed out how anyone could have put the scissors there, that we shouldn't jump to conclusions. The teacher was also in that bed, for example. It could have been her, for all we knew. That made the cook feel sorry for her new friend, and she jumped in to defend her. She turned against me. She shouldn't have done that. I was trying to help her out. How does she not see that? I just pointed at the teacher as a hypothetical. Anyway, the cook tried to turn me into a suspect. She said I might have done it for all we knew. And that was the final straw for the cleaner. That's when he lost it. He moved really fast. No one was able to stop him. He grabbed the cook and threw her against the wall. Then he jumped on top of her and just punched and punched. He kept going. There was no way for her to defend herself. Someone pulled him away from her and dragged him to the other side of the room. I couldn't see because by then, every light had gone dark. First, I thought it was just the entertainment room, but every light in every room had gone dark. I instinctively reached out to find a wall to be able to make sense of the space again. When I found one, I just leaned against it and waited for something to happen, for the lights to come back on. You could hear the cleaner and the cook breathing heavily, also waiting. Then, slowly, a yellow light started shining in the kitchen. The cone had started glowing very faintly. I could see two people standing over the cleaner. He sat up against the wall. I could see his chest going up and down. The cook was still on the floor. She wasn't moving. I told the farmer and the doctor to help the cook up and get her to the hospital room. They asked how they were supposed to do that without any light. I told them to go slow and use their hands to find their way. I hoped the cone in the dorm was glowing also and would illuminate the hospital room a little bit. The leader and I waited in the entertainment room for everyone to leave so we could talk to the cleaner. He was still sitting on the floor, up against the wall. We talked to him for a very long time, about order and about his role, about the instructions and how to interpret them in times of chaos. I knew we had to try and get through to him as fast as possible. My eyes started to get used to the darkness and his face started appearing, the cleaner's face. It started coming back out of the darkness. He didn't look entirely like himself anymore, though. 
He's changing. His eyes were empty. I have to reinstate order quickly, or who knows what he will become. Order. There's barely any of that right now. I'm not even sure if this was the right time for me to come up and record my entry. Life in darkness is a life without any sense of rhythm. I never realized that light is about much more than only being able to see. It gives a cadence to everything. Now that it's dark, time is suspended. Or rather, it creeps along, slowly and silently. You don't notice it being there anymore. Most of us spend our time in the garden room. The ceiling still emits its purple glow, so you're able to see relatively well in there. We just sit on the floor next to the glass cone, just waiting to get hungry so we can get the cook to fix us something. Getting a read on people has also completely changed for me in the dark. Facial tics, body language, all of it disappeared. And that's a good thing, I've discovered. I can hear so much more now. If you are completely deprived of every cue but sound and you know how to listen, you can hear everything in the way people speak. You can hear traces of every emotion someone went through in one word. I don't think anyone else experienced any benefits from the lights going out. Everyone else's job has been made much harder, if not impossible. Doing everything by touch makes something as simple as going from one room to another slow and impractical. The group tried to put the fixer to work, but I knew there would be no use. I understand their reasoning. He is here to fix things. The lights don't work, so go and fix them. But he has no clue where to even start. He says there's nothing about lighting in his instructions. And I'm not surprised. This is no malfunction. This is something way more significant. The eight rooms stopped us from murdering each other. No one talked about it, though. About the attack. Nobody dared to talk about it. The cook was physically okay, which is a miracle. Her face was swollen, but according to the doctor, she didn't sustain any serious injuries. Not physically. I mean, she's gone quiet. Most of the time, she just sat cross-legged on the kitchen floor, right in front of the black glass, looking at the white dots. She's changing, the cook, just like the cleaner is. He went back to work the day after the attack, but not like before, way more frantic. He tried to ignore the darkness as much as he can. There's no use, though. There's no way to clean a room without light. People kept slipping because parts of the floor were still covered in soap. I didn't say anything to him. I thought he just needed to work harder to fulfill his duty. I thought things would stay the same for a while, and I wanted to give everyone some time to catch their breath. I had no idea what the cleaner was about to do, of course. It could have been avoided. I could have helped to avoid it. That's on me. And to be honest, it's on the leader also. He has completely shut down. After the lights went dark, he started locking himself in the communication room. Whenever I ask him what we should do, he says we have no choice but to wait for the lights to come back on. 
He promises he will get to work the second that happens. He says he has a plan, but that's bullshit. I can hear he has given up. I can hear in his voice that he isn't the leader anymore. He is also changing. The company claims that experimenting like they do with new and cheaper ways of sending people towards the mines is vital for sustaining our current quality of life on Earth. They claim there's no way for them to automate labor on the DECA mining complex because of the vast distance between the facility and our planet. So there will be a need for an exponentially growing human workforce out there for many centuries to come. But, you know, the problem here is that half the DECA group would cease to exist if automated workflow was made possible in the mining complex. So the case could be made that the company is deliberately slowing innovation on that front. And also, some say the cheap, slow ships DECA Group is using in their cost-cutting experiment are simply too slow. By the time they reach the mining complex, all human passengers will have grown old. This raises questions on the purpose of the experiment. Why are those people in there? So, here's what happened. I'm on my way to the dorms. I have to go to the bathroom. Most of the others are in the garden room, as usual. I get into the elevator somehow, and I slide my hand over the wall to locate the triangle pointing down. The doors close, and I lean against a wall. Being in the elevator is horrible now. In that tiny box, the darkness is perfect. So I stand there, holding my breath, while I go down one floor. It stops, and for some reason I wait before I press the button again. And that makes the doors open on the wrong floor. It makes them open in the dining room. The little cone on the dining table is revealed. The faint yellow light. For a moment, I just stand there. Then, I hear a sound, but I don't realize what it is yet. It's a weird sound. It sounds like one of the food taps is clogged. It sounds like some thick substance is trying to force its way out through a blockage. Carefully, I step into the kitchen, and then the sound gets louder. I hear the high-pitched squeak of souls rubbing over the floor. That's when I realize someone is choking right in front of me. I call out, hello? Something starts moving, and then I hear the cook gasping for air, calling out for help with a broken throat. I suddenly see her laying right in front of the glass walls. I want to start walking backwards toward the elevator because I'm afraid of being cornered by whoever attacked her. But before I can start moving, I suddenly hear his voice right next to me. He must have walked around the other side of the table and suddenly he's standing right there. I can feel his warm breath against my cheek. I wasn't going to kill her, the cleaner says, almost whispering. I believe you, I answer. In the background, the cook is coughing and trying to sit up. 
I was just giving her a final warning, he says. I can hear the anger in the cleaner's voice, the aggression, but also his desperate grasping. He was pressing down hard on the cook's throat, not just to keep the air from going in, but also to try and squeeze out all the things he doesn't understand. Rebellion, critical, independent thinking, disdain for authority, existential fear. So I give understanding and order back to him. You will do exactly as I say, I tell him. Do you understand? He says he does. You will stand there and do nothing while I check on the cook. Then we will go back up to the garden room together. You will follow me there. When we are up there, I will talk to the group. I will reinstate order. Do you understand? He tells me he does. So I turn to the cook. She's on her feet again. I can see the dark outline of her body against the glass walls. Apparently, the glass emits some kind of light. She's just standing there, hunched forward, her arms dangling a little bit, her hair messy from the fight. But I feel intimidated, like everyone else around me. She's also changing in the darkness. And I realize in that moment, if we don't quickly find a way to turn the lights back on, that girl could become our new leader. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Today, you will meet one of the most heartless con artists to ever walk this city. Her victims... The Morning and the Confused. Her weapon? A simple poster. If all goes according to plan, you are about to witness her arrest. Right here on the Internet's most popular crime show. This is Red Handed. Meet Gerard. Gerard is a 21-year-old New Yorker. And Gerard is about to get lured into a trap. Gerard is walking the streets of his Brooklyn neighborhood. He wants to buy some snacks. But then, a poster catches his eye. It's a very simple poster. There are two lines. The first line reads, I can talk to the dead. The second line is a phone number. 
Gerard stands in front of the poster and looks at it for a while. He knows he shouldn't call the number, but he just went through a rough couple of weeks and he needs someone to talk to. Gerard can't resist calling the number. He stores the digits and goes back home without snacks. His brother is disappointed. He wanted M&M's. But Gerard has no time for M&M's anymore. Gerard wants to talk to the dead. So he goes into the bathroom, locks the door, and dials the number. First, Gerard hears a click, like a switch being flipped. Then there's silence. No tone, nothing. He considers hanging up, but right before he does, music starts playing. Weird music. It's very faint, but it becomes louder and louder and Gerard likes it. It's almost hypnotic. Then there's a click again, and the medium starts talking. Gerard thinks she has a beautiful voice. She says, tell me, stranger, what are you looking for? The question confuses Gerard, and he has to think about it. Then he says he's looking for independence, and immediately feels embarrassed about his answer. He wishes he could take it back. The medium is friendly, and she's able to make him feel more comfortable. She tells him his answer is perfect. She tells him she thinks he's brave to admit to that, especially after his mother passing away. Gerard is amazed. It's true. His mother did just pass away. He asks her how she knows that, and she explains to him that she can hear the events surrounding her death lingering in his voice. Gerard doesn't know what the word lingering means. The medium says she can hear his mother's ghost, leaving traces in between his words. Gerard still doesn't understand, but he wants to know if his mom is okay. The medium is silent for a while. Gerard asks her again. He thinks maybe they lost connection. She tells him to be quiet. She says she's listening to his mother. Gerard waits. Your mother is all right, she says all of a sudden. She's always managed to take care of herself, and she always will. Silence again. Gerard gets more nervous. It's not your mother you should worry about, the medium adds. Who then? Gerard asks. What is my mother saying? The medium giggles. Apparently, Gerard's dead mother said something funny or unexpected. Don't take this the wrong way, the medium says, but your mother doesn't like you. She never did. Gerard is shocked. What do you mean? He asks. I'm getting a lot of disappointment from her. Gerard doesn't know what to say to that. I rode the elevator back up, and I marched towards the cone. I knew my way in the darkness. I dragged the cook and the cleaner along with me. I could feel my energy starting to flow again. I knew what to do. The leader was sitting with the group, which was rare, but great, because that meant I caught everyone in one place, I thought. 
told them all to line up, and I told them I was going to be strict, but I was going to end the chaos and the fear. I was going to find the killer. I took the group by surprise. Everyone had handled themselves differently ever since the darkness came, kind of whispering, walking slowly, addressing problems carefully. Me barging in on them and talking the way I did made them compliant before they even realized what was happening. But the newfound order didn't last long. Because of everyone lining up, I noticed there were only seven people there. Eight, including me. I could see their purple shapes against the dark glass cone. Who's not here? I asked. Some genius answered, the entertainer. Then the cook stepped forward and whispered. She didn't have full control of her voice yet. She tried to say, the mystery function. And she was right. He wasn't there. He wasn't in the garden room. First I told them it didn't matter. He was probably taking a nap or something like that. He just wanted to be alone. I tried to get back to my plan, but I could sense the group became restless again. They weren't listening to me anymore. They were afraid more people would disappear. That meant we had to go look for him first. I had no other choice. So we did. We looked everywhere. And we couldn't find him. He isn't in any of the rooms anymore. He's gone. He is the second one to disappear. At one point, someone even checked his locker. He wasn't in there. I'm not sure what that means, though. If that's good or bad, I'm not sure what any of this means. I am the communicator. This is my 12th entry. After the mystery function disappeared, I stopped walking around by myself. Except when I go to the bathroom. I don't want to be alone. Ever. So, I slept with the farmer, and I made sure he had a good time. He's big and strong. I want him to protect me from the cleaner. And if the cleaner isn't the killer, if I'm wrong and the farmer is the killer, then I want the farmer to really, really like me. I try to go wherever he goes, and I listen very carefully whenever we go into another room to hear if someone is sneaking up on us. I listen for breathing or footsteps all the time. This may sound like I'm overreacting, but everybody's scared like that. Some let on more than others, but no one's sure what's going on, and everybody's scared. This morning, the farmer left me, and he didn't come back. Everyone's sitting at the kitchen table. Well, everyone that's left, anyway. But the farmer isn't there. Apparently, he said he would just go up to the garden room real quick to check on the carrots or something like that. But he's taking too long. The cook starts serving breakfast, and I excuse myself. I call the elevator to go to the garden room. I tell them to come looking for me if I take too long. In the elevator, I start feeling a little anxious because of being alone. But when the doors open, I walk in anyway. I try not to walk into the bushes, 
so I shuffle along, slowly. I call out to the farmer a few times, but he doesn't respond. And when I stop calling him, that's when I hear something. Again. I hold my breath and I listen carefully. I hear... voices. I hear people talking. There's multiple voices. They take turns, it seems. I stand there for a second to try and calm myself, and I listen to the voices. The sound is kind of muffled. These people are standing outside of the garden room, and I wonder if maybe there's a way I can hear the others talking from all the way downstairs in the kitchen. So, I decide to follow the sound, to find out. I start walking deeper and deeper into the greenery. I can distinguish male and female voices now, but I still can't make out what they say. By shuffling, I can stay on the pathways, and I don't have to worry about tripping. I come closer, and the voices start becoming a little clearer now. And I think I recognize one of them, but I'm not sure from where. I start shuffling faster because I want to know who is talking and what they are saying before it's too late, before they leave or the illusion evaporates, or before I wake up. And then I walk right into the cone. I pump right into it. Luckily, my hands are in front of me, so I don't break my nose. I fall backward and land on my butt, and I suppress the reflex to curse out loud. I just sit there and listen for a second. But the voices are gone, just like that. I stand back up and I try to let my eyes get used to the purple glow from the ceiling. And then, I hear footsteps. First I freeze, and then I hear them again. Someone is walking around in the garden room, right on the other side of the cone. I call out to the farmer again, hoping it's him. But whoever is walking up to me doesn't answer. So, I run. Like hell. The beautiful voice asks Gerard if it's true that he lived in his mom's basement, that he had never met his dad, and that he's never had a girlfriend. Gerard stands up and thinks about hanging up the phone. He wants to go back outside to get snacks instead of talking to his dead mother, who is apparently disappointed and mad at him. But the medium persuades him to stay. She says she can help him. The only thing he has to do is tell her the truth and his credit card number. Gerard sits back down and admits he's single, and he did live with his mom. The medium tells him it's okay. She asks him if he has a credit card. He does. She says she can come over to his place if he would like that. They would put together a step-by-step plan to make his mother proud again. We could spend some time together, she says. Gerard would like that. He would like to make his mom proud, and he would like to spend time with the medium. He gives the medium his address and his brother's credit card number. Gerard is allowed to use the credit card only in case of an emergency. He feels his dead mom calling him a disappointment constitutes as one. The medium tells him she can't wait to see him. He tells her he can't wait either. He can't wait to see what she looks like. After Gerard hangs up the phone, he sits in the bathroom for a while. He looks at the yellow tiles. 
he senses he is not completely aware of what is happening. There's one thing, though, that this mysterious woman isn't aware of either. Something she couldn't sense. After his mom passing away, Gerard moved out of her house and into his older brother's apartment. His older brother was sitting in the living room watching TV right at this moment. His older brother, who was a police officer. I run through the bushes and I cut myself, but I don't care. There's only one way out of this place and I need to be the first to reach it. I run into the elevator, punch the wall until I hit the button by accident and hold my breath while the doors close. It becomes perfectly dark again. I look for the wall with my hand. The elevator starts going down and I wonder if I should tell the others about the voices. I decide against it. I decide not to burden them with more confusion. First, I have to understand myself what just happened. I walk back into the kitchen and there's the farmer. He's just sitting there. He explains he went to the bathroom and says they waited for me before eating. He asks me if I'm all right. I shake my head and I try to catch my breath. I'm not all right at all. Someone is following me. But before I can tell them, the elevator starts rumbling. I freeze and just look at the elevator doors. The doctor asks, who's coming down? Everybody's here. The farmer gets up. Get ready, he says, and puts his hand on my shoulder. The doors start to open, and I take a step back. They open all the way, and there he is. The tall, stringy, mystery function. His bald head reflecting the yellow light while he slowly approaches the table. He's wearing weird clothes. A black jumpsuit. I've never seen a jumpsuit like it. He's smiling. A big, wide grin, and he looks us in the eye. He walks right up to the table, puts his hands on the top, and for the first time, finally, he speaks. Please, he says. It's a nice voice, friendly and very deep. The voice turns him into someone I can trust. That's all it takes, one word, to completely overhaul my perception of him. Please, he says, follow me back into the light. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, 
that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.